is Australia. This fucking language. Let there be a thousand blossoms bloom as far as I'm concerned. But I ain't spending any time on it. Don't stop wearing the Speedos. You're listening to Decode, the Batuta Advocates podcast series for those Australians who have tuned out or never tuned in to the dark arts of federal politics. It's called being, you wouldn't believe it, a goddamn bloody adult. Hello and welcome back to Decode, the Batuta Advocates political podcast, which aims to delve into the dark arts of politics and all of the issues around it, the different talking points, all the stuff that goes on. My name is Wendell Hussey. Dave's back in the booth with me. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Wendell. It's great to be back. It's hot down here in the Channel Country. It is. But it is we've stinking got a lovely hot. air-conditioned studio. Yeah. Might drag this one out just to stay in the aircon a bit longer. Yeah, well, look, it looks like you've finally stopped sweating. Um, I haven't. I've got at least another 10 to 15 minutes of burn in me, I reckon. Just from walking here, it's that muggy, disgusting time of year. Um, had enough of it. Still saying Happy New Year on the uh, back end of January. We'll probably be done with that soon, I'd say. We're, we're getting back into things. And we're getting back into it today. We want to talk about the voice to parliament. It's been a big issue over the last couple of weeks. Prime Minister Albanese promised to push forward with a referendum to change the constitution and provide an Indigenous voice to parliament. Now, that was something which didn't generate too many headlines at the time. Yep, that's right, Wendell. Albanese is pushing ahead with this. And as in his job description, Peter Dutton is providing the opposition and providing lots of it. So mm. today we're going to try break it down. We're not going to try and convince you whether to vote yes or no, even though you probably should vote yes. But we're just trying to translate it from the people in the wigs and the silk outfits to those of you out there in board shorts and thongs. Yeah, that's right. Now, obviously, Dutton has gone pretty hard on requesting for details. He's been vague on not asking for too much else other than details. But that's been the main talking point from him. Culture war vultures on his side have been chiming in with that sort of stuff as well. So we're going to chat to an expert today about what exactly is a referendum? Why do we need a referendum? What it involves, the different processes, the things that can go wrong, the things that can go right, all that sort of stuff. She is a constitutional law expert. It's Professor Anne Toomey from Sydney University. You might remember her from a chat a few months ago when Scott Morrison was making himself the minister for everything. So hopefully she can break down the details about this referendum and why changing the constitution is such a big deal. But we just thought really quickly we'd get into some of the bits and pieces that'll be helpful as a foundation you know the concrete slab we're going to pour the concrete slab for today's podcast and then we you know we can start putting up the house around that so if the constitution is to be changed you need a referendum basically everyone goes to the polls you vote you go yes or no it's pretty simple do we want to change the constitution constitution is actually not very big dave it's quite small i think it's 56 pages or something like that you think it's a massive massive book tiny little thing it's basically just outlines what rules and laws the government can make at the time so it's kind of just a little thing which says you can make laws on this you can make laws on that you can make laws on that but to change that overarching body you need to have a referendum that's right and this referendum unlike the marriage equality plebiscite we had a few years ago is binding so a yes vote 
will ensure that the government passes this. But mm. it's not just a simple yes vote. It needs a so-called double majority. Mm. So there needs to be a majority of voters saying yes in a majority of the states. That's four out of the six states, not the territories, just the states. But there must also be a nationwide affirmative vote. So there's the double there. You need yeah. four out of the six states and you need a total yes vote. Majority rules, majority rules, and sorry, Canberra, and sorry, David Pocock. There'll be lots of upset people about territory rights and constitutional change, all that sort of stuff that, you know, they're not as important as the states. But sorry, that's just the way it is. I know David Pocock is trying to change that with his territory rights stuff. Now, Prime Minister Albanese has put forward what he kind of proposes the amendment to be for the constitution. He broke it down into three parts. His argument is that it's basically just you're voting on the principle of do you want a voice to parliament? and do you want constitutional change, yes or no? The proposed amendment that he's provided for the Constitution is that there shall be a body to be called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Voice. The Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Voice may make representations to Parliament and the Executive Government on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. The Parliament shall, subject to this Constitution, have power to make laws with respect to the composition, functions, powers and procedures of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. So that's the proposals he's putting forward. Isn't actually set in stone yet. I think they have to go to Parliament and they have to outline specifically the questions and the proposals and the amendments that they want to change, Dave. That's right. Not too much legal mumbo-jumbo in there, but hopefully the end result will be enough for the average person to understand and make an informed decision of what they're going to vote. But Anne will break down some of that for us and discuss if that will be used, if it will be something similar, mm. and what the referendum will mean in the future. She's going to give us some of that detail, hopefully. But bring, bring, Anne is on the phone now. Anne, how are you? I'm very well. Actually, technically, I've now become a professor emerita, which sounds terribly impressive, but it just means they don't pay me. Yeah, right. I think I left AO off there as well. Oh, Not Australian Open. AO. That's fine. <laughs> Not the Australian Open, the Order of Australia. Uh, I believe I left that one off, sorry. But there you go. Well, that is good. Glad to hear. It's a very busy time for you, I imagine, uh, in terms of media. Lots of questions, lots of people chasing you up for interviews. Indeed, indeed. So we've heard a lot about the voice to parliament. It seems like everyone knows of it, but no one really knows about it, what it means, even what the constitution means, right? So you've heard a lot, I'm sure, from the average person, and so have we, about the constitution in the last few years mostly with reference to whether the government is allowed to mandate masks inside Bunnings. But can you give us an idea, just to start out, of what the Constitution actually means to the average person and how much it affects our everyday lives? Well, it sort of affects almost everything because the Constitution is the original source of power. So it's a source of power for Parliament to make laws, for example. So if your life is affected by any Commonwealth law, for example, it comes back to the constitution as to whether or not the parliament can make that law. So what a constitution does is it establishes the basis of power in Australia. It establishes the parliament, the government and the courts. So it says how they're made up, but most critically what powers they're given and what limits are on those powers. And it sets up principles like separation of powers. So the idea there is that all power does not end up in one set of hands because if it did, that would be very, very nasty. So it allows the various branches of government to be checks and balances on each other. And our constitution at the federal level also creates a federation. So we have states as well with state governments and state parliaments. 
And so the Constitution basically divvies up the powers between the Commonwealth and the states. And that's another check and balance to make sure that all power does not end up in one set of hands. Mm. So that's what it is. It's the source of power in Australia. So everything you do to the extent that you're allowed to do it or you're limited from doing it, or if you do it, you'll end up in court and in jail. All of that comes back down to the Constitution in the end. Yeah, so it's basically like a big overarching set of rules or laws that dictate what laws we can make or what laws our lawmakers can make. Correct. Yep. So, yeah, so on a bit of a history of the Constitution with relation to Indigenous people, why is the idea of a voice to Parliament and constitutional recognition so important to be able to create laws regarding Indigenous people? Okay, so the starting point is when the Constitution was written in the 1890s, no one really seemed to think to ask Indigenous Australians. Um, basically, they were regarded as a, as a race that was dying out. And it was, if you ever look at a picture of the people who wrote the Constitution, it was basically overweight white men with mm. beards. A lot of chubby um, white guys. Yeah, certainly. Anyway, so the Constitution doesn't really, uh, sorry, when it was written, didn't really mention um, Indigenous people except in ways that excluded them. So there was um, Section 5126 of the Constitution, and that's a power to make laws with respect to the people of any race. So it's often known as the race power um, for whom it's deemed necessary to make special laws. But in that, there was the word other than the Aboriginal race in any state. So that exclusion of Aboriginal people from the power to make laws with respect to people of any race excluded the Commonwealth from specifically making laws directed at Aboriginal people. The idea here being that this was a matter for the states to do, which on itself was fine, because if you come back to that 5126, the whole point of it being there was effectively a racist point. It was the purpose of it was to deal with racial groups coming into Australia for certain purposes like cane cutting, um, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff and basically containing them and then removing them when they no longer were, you know, useful to do their work. So it was a pretty awful provision that was put in there for awful purposes. Aboriginal people were excluded from it probably to their benefit back in the, the early 1900s because it would have only made racist laws against them anyway. But they were left then to laws of the states, which were often also racist. Okay. So the other provision that people often talk about is the, the, the one up the back, section 127. It said that in counting the population for the purposes of the constitution that you didn't count Aboriginal people. Now, there's a lot of myths about that. One myth is that it meant that Aboriginal people were not citizens or were not treated as people. And then you get the even more sort of odd myths about Aboriginal people being regarded in law as fauna and flora, completely untrue. But anyway, nonetheless, these sorts of things circulated. What it was actually about was at the time the Constitution was enacted, there were some largely transitional provisions that dealt with money being returned to the states on the basis of their population. And the concern was that some states like South Australia were just going to ramp up their population by claiming there are a whole lot of Indigenous people out in places that are so remote we can't count them. And so the exclusion of Aboriginal people from the count was to make sure that the numbers were actually firm numbers. They weren't numbers that were being made up. But of course, that you know has other horrible ramifications from later on when people say, oh, look, Aboriginal people aren't counted. They're not real. They're not citizens, etc." Okay, so what happened in 1967 is we got rid of Section 127. So that's now gone. Often people say that that meant that Aboriginal people could get counted in the census for the first time. 
It's actually not true. Aboriginal people were always counted in the census. But although they were counted in the census, there was a bit where they were counted separately so that they could be cut off for certain constitutional purposes. But anyway, it got removed. 5126, those exclusionary words saying, you know, this doesn't apply to Aboriginal people also got removed. And the upshot of all of that was that there's actually no mention at all now of Aboriginal people in the Constitution. So removing the bits that could be used in a racist way, good, but it meant that there's just nothing in the Constitution now about Aboriginal people. So for a long time since, people have said, and on both sides of politics, so you would have heard this from you know everyone from John Howard to Tony Abbott, etc., there is a hole in the Constitution where we just don't recognise and, and, and mention our Indigenous Australians at all and that that needs to be filled. So there's general agreement, cross-party agreement, that there should be recognition of Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islanders in the Constitution. But where the disagreement lies is to how you do that recognition, whether it's some kind of symbolic recognition or whether it's a more practical recognition, which is the form of the voice. Mm, and that is, as you said, there is bipartisan support for some recognition, but there seems to be ramping up disagreement on both sides of parliament in terms of how we proceed with this referendum in regards to a voice. Peter Dutton, the leader of the opposition party, has been making a big deal, banging on about details, hearing a lot about details from Peter Dutton. That seems to be what he's saying. Doesn't seem to be a big detail guy to me, but apparently on this issue, he wants to see all of the I's dotted and the T's crossed. How appropriate is it for Albanese and the government to release more details and provide more of a blueprint? Or does that defeat the purpose of having what this referendum is? Okay. So what we need to understand is that there are two separate things. One thing is the amendment to be made in the Constitution. So that's the words that you're putting into the Constitution. And absolutely, everybody needs to be able to understand the detail of what you're sticking in the Constitution, why, what its purpose is, how it will work, because you need to make an informed voice. So from that side of the equation, yes, you do need to know about that and people shouldn't be denied any information about that. The second side of it, though, the the other thing that's being talked about, and this is what's being banged on about detail here, is not what's going in the Constitution itself, but about what legislation might later be enacted to give effect to the mechanics of the voice, etc. Okay, so you wouldn't ever stick that type of thing in the Constitution because you don't want to freeze sort of detail there forever Mm. because it'll be a pain in the neck to change it. And of course, you want some kind of flexibility. So that if the voice is constructed one way and that's not working, then you can legislate to change it. Okay, so everybody accepts it's sensible to put that sort of thing in legislation. However, is it reasonable to ask in advance, well, if I'm going to give power to Parliament to legislate, I need to know every single thing in the detail of legislation that Parliament's going to enact in the future. Is that reasonable? Well, obviously not. Sorry, in 1967, did people say, hey, we're only going to allow Parliament to make laws with respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples if you can tell us in advance <laughs> all the details of every law that's going to be made? Because realistically, that's never going to happen, right? Mm. So that, that's part of what's going on here. Remembering that a lot of this stuff about when they talk about detail is really mechanics. I mean, does it matter one iota whether this voice is going to have... 20 people on it or 15 people on it or 30 people on it or, you know, precisely how they're chosen to represent Indigenous people. I mean, from my point of view, I just think, hey, if I were the Indigenous person who was being represented, then I'd be 
sort of wanting to know and caring about how I'd be represented. Mm. But for me and for everybody else, you know, is it really any of our business? Not really. And should we be worried about how many people there are and how it's going to operate and sort of, you know, is there going to be a CEO and, you know, what's their salary going to be and, you know, all that sort of stuff. That's all detail. That'll get worked out by Parliament. That's what Parliament's there for. Mm. And if you're worried that Parliament's going to do something bad and evil and sort of, you know, cause all sorts of grief, then remember two things. One is that the people in Parliament want to be elected in the future. So if they're going to do something completely insane, that's probably not going to be in their political interest. But secondly, it's the ordinary political process. You don't like the law that Parliament makes about how the voice is comprised, etc. You vote against them at the Mm. next election. I mean, that's how the system of democracy works. So I don't really understand why people are getting so agitated about that because it is just the ordinary system of democracy we we have and it's also somewhat confounding that it's politicians who are raising all the concern about this because ultimately who's going to decide all these details about the mechanics of the voice actually it's the politicians Mm. so the ones who are getting excited now they are the ones who are the decision makers so yes decision makers who notably like sending their kids to elite private schools and living a good life and as you said don't like to do things that are too crazy that might make people not vote for them so this detail argument in regards to as you said how the legislation might look and the details of the uh, representatives and salaries and all that sort of stuff that's something for down the track if that debate is happening that's for down the track that's not in regards to the referendum the referendum is just basically do you agree on the premise and the principle that there should be constitutional recognition and a voice to parliament and we'll work out the details down the track? That's the gist of it. So the referendum is about what the words are you're sticking in the constitution, mm. okay? So there's three sentences. First one basically says um, there's going to be a body called the voice, okay? So it has to exist. And so that's an important part of it because it puts pressure on government then to actually make it useful because if you can't just get rid of it and let it die and neglect you really need to use it properly. Okay, so thing number one, it exists. Second thing is let's give it a function, right? What's its function? It says that it may make representations to Parliament and the executive government on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Okay, so that's its main function. That's what it's there to do. And then the third provision says, and Parliament gets to make laws with respect to its composition, functions, powers and procedures. Okay, so all the mechanic stuff is done by Parliament. So that's what you put in the Constitution and that's what you'd be asked to approve, assuming, by the way, that it's those words or that formulation is what Parliament decides on. Because the other thing to remember is that we're all preempting this a bit at the moment. This hasn't even got to Parliament yet. Parliament has to approve the bill for the amendments to the Constitution first before it goes to a referendum. So hasn't got into Parliament yet. We haven't seen the absolute final version of the words and Parliament itself could amend the words. There'll be a parliamentary committee where people can make submissions. So Mm. if any of your listeners want to have their say, they can do that. They can make submissions to a parliamentary committee about it. It may be they recommend some changes to the words and it'll be the words that come out the other end in the, the final version that gets passed by Parliament those will be the words that will be the amendment that's put to the people in the referendum. And should we just be doing that on Instagram? Like should we find Parliament on Instagram and just DM our like submission requests and stuff? No, I think pretty sure you just put out tweets and hashtag Ozpol and then they'll read it from that. I <laughs> yeah, think okay. that's correct, right, Anne? 
Um, well, look, there is an issue of some confusion here, and that is that previously there was a thing called the Yes No case, which is a pamphlet sent to everybody's house. And then the politicians who'd voted yes in Parliament would get together in a committee and they'd write something about why you should vote yes. And then any politicians who voted no in Parliament would get together in a committee and they'd write a thing saying, you know, why you'd vote no. Now, previously, that was sort of the most authoritative thing, because also in the back of that, they had the actual amendment that was being made Mm. written out as well. So you at least had something. Now, there were good things and bad things about that. The good thing was, well, everybody had something they could look at. The bad thing was that the politicians who wrote both the yes and the no case would often write inflammatory slash misleading slash completely <laughs> untrue politicians what? sort of stuff about whether to vote yes or no. And the consequence of that is people would get sort of confused and, you know, and, and that also adds to the, the failures of referendums in the past. So this time the government's decided, hey, we're not going to do that because everybody said in the past this is actually not a good way of doing it. Okay, tick, agree. But the big question is, what do you replace it with? And the government, all the government said is that there'll be an education campaign and everyone will be well informed. (laughs) But Mm. we haven't seen it yet, so we don't know. Maybe they're going to pull something really good out of the bag and maybe there will be a good site that you can go to that has really excellent information. Maybe they'll get some, you know, revered um, independent body to put material out there for people thing is we don't really know at the moment how they're going to run their campaign or what they're going to do and and to the extent that i have any inside knowledge i don't have any inside knowledge of that so we don't know for sure i think it's a bad idea just to leave it to twitter and instagram Mm. for people to get their info because hey you know seriously it would be good to have some kind of authoritative site i assume that the government is conscious of that too so i'm assuming that there will be some kind of authoritative site to go to to get good information but i just don't know what it is at the moment and um, i can't refer your listeners to it yet Mm. but as i say it is still early days i mean the bill hasn't even got in the parliament so one thing to calm down about on the detail front is you know we, we haven't got anywhere near to the point yet of people having to make a decision so we probably will see quite a bit more sort of detail or, you know, a general explanation of what is intended, if not a complete bill. I think putting out a complete bill is a bit ridiculous because you can't then just go and say, hey, we're creating a voice to represent Indigenous people's views to Parliament. But by the way, we're going to tell you here is exactly how you're going to be represented without asking you right now. Um, uh, That's sort of not really appropriate. Mm. So, um, uh, but, you know, could the government give some kind of a one-page explanation or description as to what they intend subject to Parliament in future going through this process in consultation with Indigenous people? I reckon they probably could. So I'm sure we'll see something. Yeah, okay. And I'm sure there'll be some kind of authoritative site, but it's just too early at the moment. We just don't have that yet. And so around the campaign for it, I mean, obviously in election times, there are laws surrounding how you advertise and how it has to be authorised. And also during the marriage equality plebiscite, we saw something that seemed to be a bit more unregulated. Is there specific laws around referendums that dictate if third parties are allowed to put out their own advertising materials and campaign advertisements or is it pretty much just a free-for-all yeah no there are laws about it and so at the moment there is a bill going through parliament which is trying to update the referendum laws to make them consistent with the laws in relation to elections because we haven't had a referendum for so long 
the referendum law, so there is an act that deals with how you manage referendums, it hasn't been updated in the same way that the Commonwealth electoral law has been. So, you know, everything from, you know, how you do postal voting and pre-poll voting and all that sort of stuff through to how you do campaign donations and advertising and all that sort of stuff. So at the moment, there's a bill in Parliament that's that's supposed to update all of that. So we, um, assuming it gets through, then the laws will be relatively consistent. So yes, just to warn people out there, you do need to keep an eye on this because there are, although the the rules aren't as strict as they are in states about you know political donations and um, advertising all those sorts of things, it's always been more loose at the Commonwealth level. Nonetheless. Anyone who's getting into doing any spending on campaign advertising about this should be a bit careful and, and, and look at the laws now and how they're proposed to change just to make sure you don't get caught. The last referendum, I believe, was 1999, the Republic referendum. We had that brilliantly worded question, which was to alter the constitution to establish the Commonwealth of Australia as a republic with the Queen and Governor-General being replaced by a president appointed by a two-thirds majority by the members of the Commonwealth Parliament. Mm-hmm. Clear, clear as daylight there. It was a great question. <laughs> I have no idea how it failed. How relieved were you to see that, the, as you said, the question hasn't actually been formally put forward, but, but the proposed amendments and the proposed questions, uh, how relieved were you to see that there is a bit more clarity? Yeah, well, this is a thing that's slightly awkward. So the version of the question that Anthony Albanese put out at Gama, I don't think would actually be able to be used. Why? Because, as I said, there is that referendum law that at the moment is going through the parliament to change. It says that the way that you set your question is that you ask people to say yes or no to approve a bill and then it names the bill and in naming the bill they use what's called the long title of the bill which is sort of an explanation as to what's in the bill. So that's the current law. The version of the question that was initially put out by Anthony Albanese at Gama didn't comply with that. We had all assumed then that that meant that he intended to change the law to make it easier to have a question that people can understand. But curiously, they didn't put that amendment in to the bill that's currently going through Parliament. So we're still waiting to see because it's not inconceivable that somebody else might try and change the rule in relation to the question in that particular bill. So, hey, maybe that will happen and we can have a nice, clean question. Mm. But the problem that we have with having a clean, easy-to-understand question is the Constitution itself, because the Constitution itself says in terms of what you vote on at a referendum is that you vote on approving the proposed law. And so you need to somehow have your question set in a way that makes it clear that what people are voting on is not a disparate up there sort of issue of, you know, do you want a republic or do you want to voice the parliament? The question you have to be asked is, do you approve making changes to the constitution that's in this bill? So however you do it, there's an awkwardness to how Mm. you do it because of the way the constitution sits. But in terms of the the bit that you read out there before, the way they described it in the Republic thing was to quite deliberately put in a lot of words that will trigger all the Republicans who wanted a direct election by reminding them that this was not going to be a direct elected president. So there was a bit of there was a small bit of political manipulation there. So what you need to do is try and describe your bill in a simple way in its long title, but you need the question then to still make sure that people are voting on 
the actual amendment that mm. are in the bill as opposed to a more general question of do you want a voice to parliament? While that might be a nice question to stick in there, at the moment that would be inconsistent with both the Referendum Act and probably also the way the Constitution requires you to vote. Right. Is that something that the Prime Minister could run into trouble with in the next couple of months then? Um, well, look, I, I don't know what they're doing in the end about the bit about the question. You can make it reasonably simple in terms of how you describe the bill and then still use the long title of the bill. But however you do it, if you're going to use the current law, it's still going to look a little bit awkward and unclear to people because you're still going to have to be approving a particular bill. So it's going to be a bit awkward for them. But, you know, I mean, you can change your legislation to try and make it a bit clearer. But even if you do that, you're still going to be consistent with the Constitution. So, you know, it's not a lot they can do about that. Right. So now that we're on the topic of referendums in general, and I guess before we move on to the effects of this specific one, I just wanted to find out, we've said it's been almost now 25 years since the last referendum, uh, the one about the Republic, which failed. If this referendum is a success, do you see the door being open for more in the future, maybe like another vote on the Republic or something else that politicians might be biding their time and waiting to see how this plays out before they, you know, launch another campaign? Yeah, well, certainly in the negative, um, if this one fails, I think the chances of a republic referendum or anything else will go down with it because I can't see the current government or indeed any government wanting to put up another referendum in the short term if this one fails. So there's high stakes on this particular referendum. I mean, if if, if you want a republic or other sorts of things, other sorts of constitutional change, if we fail again and we haven't had a successful referendum since 1977, then it's really going to discourage politicians from ever running referendums. And that's, you know, not a good thing because that freezes your constitution again. And look, constitutions do need updating from time to time. So failure would certainly cause a lack of interest in doing a referendum in the future. Would success prompt a future referendum? Maybe. Maybe if we finally get rid of the hoodoo of always voting no, (laughs) uh, it might encourage people to go for a further referendum. I mean, we do know that the Albanese government, when it was elected, said that Republic was was on its agenda, that it was only a second-term sort of interest, and it was only after um, they've dealt with the voice. But if they have dealt with the voice successfully... They might well pursue it, but um, again, I guess it depends on how bruising the experience of constitutional change turns out to be. I mean, Robert Menzies, after he failed in um, a referendum, I think it was the Communist Party referendum, said it was a labour of Hercules to get up a referendum in Australia, and you know, basically he'd had a gutful and he wasn't going to do it again. So you can understand people would have that attitude. Yeah, it is tough. I mean, change is always scary, especially when... There's so many in our media and in the government and opposition saying how much we're the lucky country at the moment, even though for some people it might not seem that way. But if this does pass, will there be an immediate effect that will be felt from it or will it still be a slow process to actually legislate the changes that can come of it with continued opposition from people like Peter Dutton and his friends? Um, Yeah, look, that's a good question. I'm I'm sort of hoping the government's going to put out some kind of prospective timetable telling us how to do this because one of the awkward things about it will be if it passes the constitution is going to say there shall be a body to be called the aboriginal and torres strait islander voice okay so it's telling you that there shall be that body and you have to get there quick smart and do it but on the other hand 
you do need to go through a proper consultation process to do it. My guess, for what it's worth, is that one way of dealing with that would be to set up a, a, an interim body. So in the, in the short term, you'd set up some kind of interim body that was you know, appointed, etc., which would then go through the process of the consultation necessary to work out how to set up a permanent body. That would be a, a sensible way of doing it, and you could set up an interim body relatively quickly and get the process underway so that you weren't sort of disobeying the Constitution, that you, you'd done what the Constitution said, that there shall be one, but you've got it as an interim one until you actually work out the full process for doing the proper one. So that's my guess as to what they do, but I'd be interested to see if they could put out some kind of a indicative timetable or a process for what they would do post-referendum. So we'll have to wait and see if they do that. And then I just wanted to ask a couple of more personal questions, I guess. In terms of the constitution, I imagine this is going to be a pretty big year in terms of um, people coming to you, you're advising, obviously, on top of everything else that you do, you're on the expert panel, you're providing advice, everyone's coming to you asking for you to explain things and um, break it all down for us. You prepared for a massive year ahead? Uh, yes. Um, fortunately, at the end of last year, I um, went away on a, basically a bit of a sabbatical to Oxford and went and did different things for a couple of months. And um, it was great. It was a great way of sort of refreshing your mind. And it was also mm. great to just see other people's problems, which is sometimes bigger than your own. Put things in perspective. Um, we were there for the um, Liz Truss, Rishi Sunak sort of um, thing, moving oh, yeah. from one prime minister to another. and. All the British people we spoke to were utterly embarrassed about their, you know, government and um, politics and what had been happening. Although then they'd cheer up immediately when they thought of Scott Morrison and the secret ministry thinking, well, at least we're not that bad. (laughs) Well, I'm sure that's uh, watching the British government roll their prime ministers made you feel like home while you were away as well. Well, I did in a way, but it was sort of a thing when I was thinking, yeah, we've been through that. We've done that. We've sort of begun to move on, thank God. But anyway... It was really good and refreshing. So yeah. it's sort of given me a bit more of a, of a boost to come back to this. Because, I mean, I do have to say, although a lot of this is new to people, and so I have to be conscious of the fact that, you know, most people when asked about The Voice think it means a television program with singers on it. <laughs> I've been dealing with this stuff since, I think, you know, basically 2014 was when we first started, you know, this sort of a proposal. So... I've said the same thing sort of 3,000 times for, you know, um, almost 10 years now and you get a bit tired of repeating yourself over and over again. But then again, you've got to remember that a lot of the people who are listening have really only heard it for the first time. So you need to be patient and you need to explain. So, hey, I'm going to try. I'll do my best. I do try and answer, you know, particularly radio stations that, you know, aren't in the metropolitan cities and stuff because I'm, I'm a country girl. I came from a country town and people out, out of the main cities in Australia do need and have the right to as much information as everybody else as well. So mm. doing the best. You are. You're doing a great job, Anne. Sometimes. You're doing a great job. You've been very patient with us and you've, um, yeah, you provide a lot of insight and it's very valuable. Just, just one last quick question, actually, just it's a constitutional one, potentially. Here in town, in Batuta, unfortunately, there was a bit of an altercation a couple of weekends ago at the Lord Kidman Hotel, which is one of the big pubs in Batuta's CBD. Myself and a guy were in a bit of an altercation. That guy, he's the son of the publican, and I've now been barred from that pub, and they're Ooh. saying that I've got a ban and I can't go back in there. 
just from trying to do some research, I thought maybe that was a bit unconstitutional. I'm just wondering if there's any, if you had any kind of legal advice for me on that or yeah. what I could, how I could get around that. Constitutional right to enter a pub. Hmm. Interesting question. When I was once visiting New York, I went to a, um, a place that sold pizzas and the, the little um, placemat had written on it, you have a constitutional right to eat pizza, which I thought was quite interesting. I knew the Supreme Court had interpreted things in an odd way in the United States, but I'd never heard of a constitutional right to eat pizza. So is there a constitutional right to enter a pub? Um, not that I've seen, although, you know, you never know there's an implication in relation to things that are fundamentally un-Australian, um, removing anyone from a pub. To be more um, direct in terms of your legal question, it would come down to questions of probably state laws about licensing of public houses and about whether or not there's a requirement for public houses to be open to everyone or whether or not they can put limits on who can enter the pub. So it's probably not the federal constitution you need to look at. Mm. I'd be just checking out your state laws in relation to licensing of, of, of public houses. I'll do that and I'll chase up that pizza precedent as well, see if mm. there's anything in that. And I was just thinking um, next time you're in Canberra for this constitution stuff, you can trade Oxford war stories with David Pocock. He was um, <laughs> he was there for a couple of years. He took a sabbatical, sabbatical from rugby as well. Well, there you go. Good place to do it too. Yeah. All right, and Tumi, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure, and uh, look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you. Bye.